excited to be here with you guys. So, we're in the book of Colossians, if you remember. We're going to start chapter 2 today in the book of Colossians. So, let's remind ourselves. Um, so, Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and then he'll, you'll see in verse 1 today, also the church at Laodicea. So, it's, it's, it's called the book of Colossians, but he's also wanting this letter to be read to the neighboring church in Laodicea. We'll talk about that in a second. And so Paul's doing two things. He's, he's saying, hey, look, there's some, there's some funky teaching, some false teaching, some heresy that's, that's taking place around you. And we just want you to be aware of that. But he's also encouraging the church at the same time, saying you're doing a great job by staying steadfast in, in your faith to Jesus Christ. So that's just the way Scripture is, right? It warns us and it encourages us. And we should always walk away from Scripture both warned and, and encouraged. So that's what Paul's doing. So just to... Uh, remind ourselves that that's what's happening in the book of Colossians, is that there's some bad teaching going on in that, in that area. Alright? Alright, we're good. Good to see you guys. This is so fun. Let me open up with a few quotes from C.S. Lewis, the first one. This makes sense, right? Nothing can deceive us unless it bears a plausible resemblance to reality. That's the whole point. Otherwise, we're not deceived. And the enemy knows how to do this very, very well. C.S. Lewis also says this, he says, No one can deceive you unless he makes you think he is telling the truth. The unblushingly romantic has far less power to deceive than the apparently realistic. That's what makes false teaching and heresy so tricky, is it's meant to look right. It's meant to look truthful. A little leaven, right? Leaven's the whole from the dough. Let's quickly recap chapter 1, because I think it's important for us to, to recap chapter 1. And if you want to look through as I hit some things in chapter 1, but I think that's going to help us to really understand what Paul's talking about in chapter 2, okay? So, in Colossians chapter 1, which we covered over the last four weekends, we are powerfully presented with Jesus' resume. I just think that that's amazing. If you ever want to know who's Jesus, his resume is found in Colossians chapter 1, which Pastor Dave pointed out. Here's some things about his resume. Verse 15. If you want to look, go ahead. In verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Image means the exact representation, the exact likeness of God. Verse 19 says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. It's really saying the same thing in a different way. In verse 16, it says that all things have been created through him and for him. Church, did you know that you were created through him and for him? Ah, that's what verse 16 tells us. In verse 18, it says that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Oh, I hope he has first place in your life because he will come to have first place in everything. That's the place that God has put him in this world. In verse 17, it says that in him all things hold together. I don't know about you, but life sometimes it feels like things are falling apart. You wonder what is happening. Turn to Jesus Christ because in him all things hold together. In verses 13 and 14, there's some things that Jesus does for us that we tend to, sometimes we get used to language and it becomes less impactful. I hope we never lose sight of the impact of the language found in verses 13 and 14. Here's the language of verses 13 and 14. It says that Jesus rescued us. Did you know that we needed to be rescued? How are we responding to him who rescued us? It says that he transferred us. He 
transfer us from Fullerton to Orange County. He transferred us from the domain of darkness into light. That's where he transferred us from. Darkness into light. It says that he redeemed us. He paid a price that only he could pay. Because God demands holiness and Jesus was perfect. But we are imperfect. And it says that he forgave us. Oh, church, do we have much to be thankful for? Oh, my goodness. And then verses 20 and 22 says that he did something that's really amazing. It says that he, he reconciled us. He made it right again. It was never going to be right again between us and God. And Jesus reconciled us. There was a movie in 1984 called Irreconcilable Differences. You remember that movie with Ryan O'Neill and Shelley Long and, and, and Drew Barrymore was a little kid. And the movie was called Irreconcilable Differences. Well, that movie doesn't exist in God's kingdom. All of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, Christ has reconciled the differences between us and God through Jesus Christ. His blood covers all those differences. All of us are treated the exact same way. Regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our sins, there's not one difference that was irreconcilable because of what Christ did on the cross. Oh my. We're also shown in chapter 1, which now makes sense, knowing that what we know of the person of Jesus Christ, that the gospel, it says in verse 6 of chapter 1, that the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Where? In all the world. And then it says in verse 4 that the gospel leads to two things. It leads to faith in Jesus Christ and, if you remember this from the last couple of weeks, and love for one another. The gospel message doesn't just lead us to faith in Christ. It also leads us to love each other. So if we're not doing it, then the gospel message is not impacting our lives the way that it's supposed to. And then Paul concludes chapter 1 by boldly declaring that the gospel, or Jesus Christ, is worth suffering for. You're here this morning, you're suffering of your time, right? You're giving up your time to be here for Jesus, for the church, for one another. It's worth suffering for. The gospel is worth suffering for. That the church, Paul also says that the church which Christ ushered in is worth suffering for. And that's how he wraps up chapter 1. With that being the case, it makes sense then that the enemy will try any number of ways to derail or to discredit the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The church that proclaims and those that follow Jesus Christ. The enemy will not relent. J. Bernard McGee, as we go into chapter 2, he points out that in chapter 2 we come across five heresies or five errors or false teachings that endanger you and I, that endanger the people of Colossae and Laodicea and the church of the Us. Here's what those five things are. We don't have time to get into all these, but we'll get into the first one today. The first one is enticing words. That's the first heresy, enticing word. Verse 4 says that, that you will not be deluded with persuasive argument. We'll talk about that in a second. The second thing is philosophy. The third thing is legalism in verses 14 through 17. The fourth thing is mysticism, verses 18 and 19. And the fifth thing is asceticism, verses 20 to 23. Take a snapshot of this. You can look some of these words up. These are all addressed in chapter 2 of the book of Colossians. And Paul's saying, all of these are combated how? Through the person and understanding of Jesus Christ and through his word. Amen? 
read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to pray. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You may know this already, but we're the New American Standard Bible is what we use here. So if you're on your phone, that's what you want to look for. New American Standard Bible, or there's one in front of you, in the seat in front of you. Take it home if you need it. Verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those also who were at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that includes you and I. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery. What is that? That is Christ himself. Verse 3. In Christ are in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this so that no one will delude you or deceive you with a persuasive or with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent body, Paul writes, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. And I rejoice to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Right? So he's warning and encouraging. That's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, be careful, but you're doing great. Verse 6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue in Him. So we've got to do both. As you, as you received Him, so walk in Him. Keep going. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Wow, what a great way to finish that stanza. Let's pray. Almighty God. We're, we're humbled to, to be here, Lord. We're humbled to have the privilege as your sons and your daughters to sing praises to you because of what you did for us by redeeming us and rescuing us and transferring us and forgiving us. We're, we're humbled, Lord, that you give us your word, the, the riches of your word that we get to engage in as, as a community called the church, that we get to take that home with us and take it with us to work and, 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 and study your word and be be free because of the truths that are in it. And not have to worry about false teaching or false arguments or persuasive words. But we're humbled to be part of the, the, the church family, which is your body. You're the head and we are the body. You, you invited us in because of what you did on the cross to be part of your body. We belong to you because you belong to us. So Lord, we just submit ourselves to you. We just hit pause on whatever's going on in our lives. We, we open up Holy Spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with each and every one of us here. That you administer each person here in the way that you desire. We lift, up, we lift this up to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody say, Amen. Thank you, church. Did you know that in Yellowstone National Park, there are large signs that read, Don't feed the bears. Don't feed the bears. Don't feed the bears. Tourists always disobey these large signs. They feed the bears. And every year the park rangers have to go around picking up dead bears. The bears get acclimated to being fed by the tourists. And they lose their ability to fend for themselves in nature. And they wind up looking for a handout. And when the handout is no longer there, they die. Satan offers us handouts. And he, he gets us so used to him that we forget about God and we lose our ability to fend for ourselves. Satan has a strategy of tricking people into relying on cheap substitutes, false teaching, erroneous thinking. We quit relying on 
of God, we quit focusing on the Lord and we get these cheap substitute handouts. And then we die. Let's now enjoy our adventure through verses 1 through 7. But before we kind of toggle through each of the verses singularly, I want to hit a big chunk first. The first thing worth noting is what I'll call the centerpiece of our time together, our time in these verses. Look at verse 4. We're talking about a church that Paul's uh, writing this letter to because of false teaching. He says, I say this, and we'll talk about what he's saying. I say this so that no one will delude you or deceive you with persuasive arguments. That's the whole purpose of Paul's letter. I say these things, what things, we'll talk about those things, so that no one will delude you, deceive you with persuasive arguments. Well, here's what's cool. For every issue, there's an answer that God has for us. Everything is addressed in Scripture. And what's cool about that? You find the problem in verse 4, the answers are in verses 3 and in verse 5. Around every problem, we're surrounded with the answers. Look at verse 3, then we're going to look at verse 5. In whom, right? This is, the, this is the stuff that I say this. In whom Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How many treasures of wisdom and knowledge? All. You don't have to worry about being deceived from the moon because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that will set us free from any temptation of false teaching. Look at verse 5. Even though I'm absent in body, you're going to be fine, Paul said. Nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see two things. Your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Good discipline, stability of your faith, the treasures of knowledge and wisdom found in Christ. So let's put it all together. The ability not to be deluded, the ability not to be deceived, to be misled, to be made a fool of, because not being wise is to be foolish. The ability not to be deceived, misled, or made a fool of is found in verses 3 and verses 5. When we have good discipline and stability of faith, that's verse 5, then we will have all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Amen? Yeah, you bet. So, let's all ask ourselves some questions. Let's take a little quiz of sorts based on these three verses. Verses 3, 4, and 5. How deeply do verses 3, 4, and 5 apply to our lives? First question of our quiz. Are you prone, as verse 4 says, to being deluded with persuasive argument? Are you prone to being deluded with persuasive argument? Whether you're sharing your faith with somebody, or you're listening to the news, or anybody that's contending against our faith. Things that you read, feelings that you have, where you say, is this real? Is God real? Do you, do you tend uh, to be deluded with persuasive argument? You start to doubt your faith, or doubt the church, or doubt Jesus Christ, or doubt, 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 doubt. Is that you? It's a lot of people. Are you prone to being deluded with persuasive argument? Persuasive argument is also known as plausible. It's like, oh, that, that's, that's possible. Like, that's, that's what Satan does, right? The ESV calls it plausible argument. The NIV calls it fine-sounding argument, where it's like, oh, that's a fine-sounding argument. Maybe that's true, but it's not. The New King James calls it persuasive words. Hey, look, I've been saved for 38 years. There are times when you, you know things hit you, it's not like, oh, you know, you maybe you doubt your faith or you wonder, you just gotta get back in the scripture and back focused on Christ to get recalibrated again. 
Let's reconsider the quote earlier from C.S. Lewis where he says, Nothing can deceive unless it bears a plausible resemblance to reality. And so the enemy knows how to use scripture to give plausible arguments that are not accurate. Again, a little leaven leavens a whole lot. We must be careful. The enemy is known as what? The deceiver. Yeah, the deceiver. The enemy, the deceiver, will stop at nothing. No, stop at nothing. So it makes sense that oftentimes we even see the deception of fine-sounding arguments in the church. People make fine-sounding arguments in the church. They're using scripture. Satan will tempt them or twist things around. And so that often happens in the church. And that's what can make sometimes church uh, confusing or hard for people. Because the enemy gets in there and he uses fine-sounding arguments even in the church. So that was our first question. Our second question in our quiz is this. This is a great question. Do you awake each day and journey through each day with a treasure chest and with wealth? What do I mean by that? If somehow, someway, I found in my new home a big old treasure chest worth lots and lots and lots of money, guess what I'm going to do with that treasure chest? I'm going to take it with me when I go to church. I'm going to take it with me when I go grocery shopping. I'm going to take it with me everywhere I go because it's my treasure. I don't want anybody touching my treasure. Do you leave the house? Do you awake each day? Do you journey through each day with treasure? Check this out. Look at verse 3. In Christ are hidden. What does it say? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them. Not some of them. Most of them. It doesn't say most of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You've got to find the rest on your own. It says all of them exist in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? All. I need to wake each day with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's what I do. And I'm just learning that more and more and more as I mature and grow. It's like I get to spend time with Jesus Christ and His Word. I get to live in the riches of this. I get to take this wherever I go. But check out verse 2. In the middle of verse 2 it says, And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery. What is that? Christ Himself is our wealth and our treasure. That's our wealth and our treasure. That's our wealth and our treasure. Why is it important to, to wake and walk with wealth? Why? Why is it important now to wake and to walk with wealth? Verse 4 tells us, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Hey, look, when we make decisions based on that information, does it usually go good or bad? You can all answer. Does it usually go good or bad? Bad. He's saying you can make great decisions because all the wealth and all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ. And he says that, I say that so that no one will delude you. I love it. Our third question comes from verse 5. Would Paul rejoice to see 
your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Look at verse 5. Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, and I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and your firmness or stability of your faith in Christ. Would Paul rejoice to see your good discipline? Would he rejoice to see the stability of your faith? On a scale from 1 to 10, tell me about your discipline. On a scale from 1 to 10, tell me about the stability of your faith. Paul rejoices in theirs. Would he rejoice in yours? Would he rejoice in mine? Sometimes my faith wavers. And I have to repent. Because I know better. It seems reasonable to me that good discipline and stable faith go hand in hand. It seems reasonable. Good faith and stable faith go hand in hand. And so I ask you, what tends to hinder your discipline in the Lord? What tends to hinder your discipline in Jesus Christ? If all the wealth and all the treasure are found there, what tends to hinder the discipline that you have towards Jesus? What currently, right now, encumbers your discipline in the Lord? And how stable is your faith? So, let's put all this together now. Okay? So, that's the first slide. So... The lack of discipline in Christ leads to an unstable faith in Christ, keeping us from all the wealth and all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ, making us vulnerable to the deception of plausible, reasonable, believable, conceivable, acceptable arguments. <coughs> this is just a great book. Right? This literally can save our lives and set our lives in the right direction. All day, every day, when we treasure who Christ is and the fact that he penned these words. Amen? That's good for us. It's good for us to know. Paul, Jesus, the Holy Spirit does not want us to be vulnerable to deception. A plausible Reasonable, believable, conceivable, and acceptable arguments. We're not to do that. Let's hit verse 1. Let's read verse 1. Verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, as well as those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. It's interesting, right? It's not just a letter to the Colossians. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. The end of the letter, chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, When this letter is read among you, right, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. It's got to go there next. Because that's just reality. Paul's teaching is this everywhere. If Colossians chapter 1, verse 6 is true, let's read that. If Colossians 1, 6 is true, go back to Colossians 1, verse 6. <laughs> It says that the gospel, verse 5 ends with the gospel, which has come to you, verse 6, just as in all the world, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is in all the world, bearing fruit and increasing. So if that's true, and oh by the way, it is, right? That's why we are involved in missions, because we know that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. So if that's true, then global heresy is to be expected. Because the enemy's enemy hates the truth. Right? Paul, it also says in 
verse 1 of chapter 2. Not only struggles, it says, he struggles or contends or suffers for those who have seen him face to face. He says, and for those who have not personally seen my face. How many people do you struggle or suffer for that you've never met or who have never met you or seen your face? More or less those that have seen your face. Also, I suffer for those that haven't even seen my face. Similarly, church, the Lord, it says the Lord contends for us and fights for us and suffers for us that Jesus is our advocate for those, which happens to be you and I, that have not personally seen his face. Did you know that? The Lord contends for us. The Lord fights for us. We haven't seen his face, but we know that he does that for us. I just think that's such an encouraging word for us to know that the Lord is fighting for us. Let's look at verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Right? We're knit together in love because of what Christ did on the cross. And attain to all the wealth that comes through Christ himself. Paul states here his desire or purpose or goal for their hearts to be, uh, to be encouraged and for their hearts to be knit together or united in love. I don't know about you, but my heart can never be over-encouraged. You can encourage me and encourage me and encourage me. It can be discouraged, no lucky discouragement. Nobody likes to be discouraged. My heart likes to be encouraged. And our hearts are to be encouraged. But Paul is saying that the encouragement comes in the body of Christ. We're supposed to be encouraging one another. That's the role of the church is to encourage one another. We're often discouraged because we feel alone. Yes, but being knit together in love brings encouragement. I can be surrounded. I got a great wife. I got great kids. I got great friends. A great church. Great co-workers. And I can feel alone so easily and so quickly. And the Lord desires for us to be encouraged in heart. And what He's saying in verse two is that's the role of the church as well. That's what it really means to be the church. Is to be a life and to be encouraging one another. That's what it means to be in the church. See, what Paul is saying is that you can't disassociate proper theology from proper living. Proper theology leads to proper living, but proper living leads to proper theology. As you act out what you know, you understand the theology of Jesus Christ better. That's what it says. That's what it means. J. Vernon McGee says this. He says, the Holy Spirit has already made the church united. Do we have that? Thank you. The Holy Spirit has already made the church united. He's already done that. He puts all believers into one body. And we're told to keep the unity of the Spirit. That's what Paul writes about in the book of Ephesians. To keep the unity of the Spirit. We're already united. And we're to fight to keep the unity so that our hearts are encouraged. So that we learn who Christ is. That our theology grows because we're acting out what it means to be the body of Christ. Here's another way of saying it. Complete understanding results from complete yielding. Complete understanding only comes from complete yielding. We must both learn and live the things of the Lord. One commentary says this. I love it. About this verse. It's the spiritual riches. That's what we're talking about in these verses, right? The wealth and the treasure of God. Spiritual riches, this commentary says, spiritual riches are reserved for those who encourage each other and have a strong commitment to the body of Christ. 
I'm going to say that again. Spiritual riches, which is what we're talking about in this stanza, are reserved for those who encourage each other and have a strong commitment to the body of Christ. God's riches are for you. That's many people. That's many people in this church, and I'm grateful for that. See, God's purpose for man is unity, not division. That's God's purpose for man. It's what he created, and we're to preserve that. God's purpose is unity, not division. Community, not isolation. Jesus doesn't live in isolation. God doesn't live in isolation. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in isolation. They live in unity. Verse 3. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As I mentioned, Christ, who is in perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, possesses all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is the apprehension of truth. Wisdom is the application of it to life. Knowledge is the application or the, the apprehension of truth, and then the application in life is wisdom. Both wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. You want knowledge? You want wisdom? Turn to Jesus. You need answers? Turn to Jesus. You want to know what's going on? Turn to Jesus. Trying to make sense out of anything and everything? Turn to Jesus. See, it's all about, it's both prudent judgment and prudent action. Prudent judgment and prudent action. So it's something like this. Yeah, this scenario, I know exactly what to do. I'm not going to do it, but I know exactly what to do. That's prudent judgment, but not prudent action. Now we giggle, you guys are all smiling, right? Do you know how often we do that? Do you know how often the church, you and I, I'm guilty of that all the time. Well, maybe not all the time, but enough. It's pathetic. Right? You know what you're supposed to do. Prudent judgment. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I, yet I don't do it. Like something's like, I, I can't cross that gap, I it seems at times. All that is done in the person of Jesus Christ. We're empowered to do that through the Holy Spirit that is poured out by Jesus Christ. It's prudent judgment and prudent action. Are you as prudent in action as you are in judgment? Are you as prudent in your action as you are in your judgment? The church is really, really good sometimes in prudent judgment, but not prudent action. Right? That makes sense, right? We know, but we don't do. Lord, help us. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. He's so good. He's so patient. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this. About verse 3, about all the treasure being hidden in Christ. But by his doing, you are in Christ. By his doing, he puts you in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Look, I say this all the time. I'm just not a smart guy, but I'm a wise guy. <laughs> we, regardless of our academics, background, our school smarts, or whatever, all of us, because of what Jesus has done, can be full of knowledge and wisdom, because the wealth and the treasure is all found in Jesus Christ. Amen? I love that. Verse 4. Let's read verse 4. I say these things, I say this, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. As mentioned, outside of Christ, 
outside of Christ, outside of Christ, we're all in danger of deception by fine-sounding and plausible arguments. When we step outside of the person of Jesus Christ and get into our flesh, we are all in danger of deception by fine-sounding and plausible arguments. Fact. Isn't that what these verses say? Okay, so raise your hand if you believe that to be true. Raise your hand if you believe, if I've sold you on that fact, called more of you should be raising your hand. <laughs> Outside of the person of Jesus Christ, we're all in danger of deception. Because he says, I say these things so that no one will persuade you, deceive you with persuasive words. So if we believe that, the next question is, do we live like that? If you believe that to be true, that outside of the person of Jesus Christ, that we're all in danger of being misled and deceived, if we know that to be true, are we living every day of our lives like it's true? Because if we don't, then it's not, have you been deceived lately? It's, tell me how have you been deceived lately? That's the question. If we're not doing that, then the question is, so, what's your most recent episode of being deceived? Tell me about this. Oh, I see you're outside of the person of Jesus Christ. Makes total sense. False. See, these are some of the things that happen, right? Some of the ways that we have been deceived. False direction for, for life. False thoughts about God. False thoughts about others. False stances taken about something. Etc. 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 When we step outside and get into our flesh and step outside of the person of Christ. Check out verse four. Those first three words, uh, first three words of verse four, they, they mimic or they mirror the first three words of verse twenty-eight found in chapter one. Verse four says, "I say this," and verse twenty-eight says, "We proclaim him." Okay, so in verses two and three, Paul's talking about Christ, 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 and I say this about Christ so that verse twenty-eight says, "We proclaim Christ," and towards the end of verse twenty-eight, the same words, so that. Verse 28 says, we proclaim Christ so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. Verse 4 says, I say this about Christ so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. So if you put those together, so that we preach Christ, teach Christ, point people to Christ, so that there's no defect in you and no deception in you. That's what those two verses say. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, great. No defect and no deception. Wouldn't it be great to go through life knowing that there's no defect and you don't have to worry about going to the left or going to the right and being misled? Because Christ, Christ, Christ takes away all delusion and all defect. Oh, that's amazing to me. Proverbs 9.10 says this. The fear of the Lord. The reverential fear of the Lord is the beginning of your wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We must know who Jesus is. We must know His Word. So we can go through life without defect, without deception. That encourages the heart. Verse 5. For even though an absent body, and nevertheless I am with you in your spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Jesus is absent body. 
Like Paul, Jesus also was absent by or present through the person of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Jesus is present with us every day. Yeah, but I don't feel him. Well, it says here, nevertheless, verse 5, nevertheless, I love that word. Nevertheless, I am with you in the Spirit. Yeah, but sometimes I don't feel the way I should feel. Nevertheless, I'm with you. Sometimes I don't see your handiwork in my life. Nevertheless, I am with you. Sometimes I don't feel love. I'm discouraged. Nevertheless, I am with you. I'm so grateful for that. And so I ask you, like Paul, is Jesus rejoicing or grieving over your good discipline? It says in verse 5, Paul says, I'm rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith. Is Jesus rejoicing or grieving over your discipline? Is Jesus rejoicing or grieving over your good discipline? Is he rejoicing or grieving over the stability of your faith? They put this quote up. And I, I don't know if we fixed this, Chris. Because uh, I left the word out and I apologize for that. It will take an orderly and firm life in Christ to navigate and avoid. That's what's missing. To navigate and avoid the deception and pain and destruction that comes with it. It's going to take an orderly and firm life in Jesus Christ to navigate and avoid the deception and the pain and the destruction that comes with it. That's what it's going to take. We, we got to do the work. We got to do the work. Verses 6 and 7 as we bring this home. Verse 6. Therefore, therefore, as you have received Christ as Lord, so walk with Him as Lord, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith just as you were instructed. So He's commending them and overflowing with gratitude. And so I ask, are we continuing on in our faith with the same vigor, with the same excitement, with the same commitment, with the same gratitude that we started with? Has it got better? Have you flatlined? Has it gotten worse? God's an infinite God. We serve an infinite God. Shouldn't we have more vigor, more commitment, more excitement towards our God instead of us? Do we possess, listen to this, an ever-increasing delight in God? Do you possess an ever-increasing delight in God? We know from Scripture, we especially know this from Paul. One of the signs of a healthy believer is somebody that has an immense amount of gratitude. They're just thankful. You learn from Paul, he was thankful in everything. He was thankful, thankful, thankful. That's what it says in verse 7. We're overflowing with gratitude. One of the first signs that we're slipping in our faith, we're slipping in, our, in, 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 our, in the traction that we have, is when our gratitude starts to fade. And, and other things replace that gratitude. So here's what's happening. See, simply receiving Christ does not cause the enemy to relent. So it's like, okay, well the Colossians don't receive Christ, so now I'm going to do something different. Right? The enemy may have failed to keep us from receiving Christ. Okay. To prevent us from that. So now he's going to try to keep us from continuing in Christ. Oh, that's what he'll do next. Alright, go ahead and receive Christ. I didn't talk to you on that one. So now that you have, what is going to keep us from continuing in Christ? He'll do whatever he can to derail us in our relationship 
with Jesus Christ, which matures and flourishes in the church. Look at verse 7. It says, firmly rooted. What a great start, right? As you give your life to Christ, you're rooted in Him. Maybe that's some of you here. And then you get built up in Him, and maybe that's some of you here. And then you get established in your faith, and maybe that's some of you here. And then you're overflowing with gratitude as you do that. See, when we're firmly rooted, when we're built up, when we're established in our faith, two things. We will not be blown away, and we will be blown away. We will not be blown away, and we will be blown away. Okay? When you're firmly rooted, grown up, built up in Him, and established in your faith, you won't be blown away by every wind of doctrine, by every fine-sounding teaching, by every plausible argument. But you, what you will be blown away with is how great, how grateful you are, and how thankful you are. That's what you'll be blown away with when you get rooted and established and built up in Christ. You won't be blown away by every wind of doctrine, but you'll be blown away with gratitude in your heart. And that's why Paul was always, 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 always thankful. Amen?